Hey, before we get started, uh, we just wanted to let you know we have so many upcoming live shows to talk to you about. Yes, on July 7th, I will be at History Camp Boston. That's me, Tracy only. Holly won't be at that one. I will be in the History Podcaster panel. And then the next day, July 8th, we will both be doing a live show at Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts. It's an outdoor show. It will happen rain or shine. And since parking is limited at the park, people are encouraged to take public transportation. That is probably how I will be getting there. Also in July, we will be back at Convention Days at Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York. Convention Days is running from July 20th to 22nd, and our show is going to be on Saturday, July 21st. And then we have big, big, big news that we are both very excited about. We are going on an actual multi-city tour. We're going to hit the East Coast in August, where we will be coming to Atlanta, Georgia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Somerville, Massachusetts, Brooklyn, New York, and Washington, D.C. And then in October, my favorite spooky time of year, we will be coming to the West Coast with stops in Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and Los Angeles, and San Francisco, California. You can find more information about all these shows at our website, which is mistinhistory.com. Click on the link in the menu that says live shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It's time for six impossible episodes everyone's favorite time. For new listeners, a couple of times a year, we put together an episode on six topics that for one reason or another can't exactly work as well as a standalone show. All six of today's topics are examples of mass evacuations of children and youth because of war or some other unrest. And we've gotten multiple requests for some of them, including kinder transport, Operation Pedro Pan, and Operation Baby Lift, as well as its tragic plane crash. And some of these are big enough stories that they probably could stand on their own as their own episode, but then that would make it a lot harder to ever talk about any of the other ones. And they also have a lot of overlap. And one thing that's true of all of these evacuations, which we're not going to repeat every single time because it is true of all of them, is that these children's experiences after being evacuated were really all over the place. Some of the evacuees developed strong and close and loving relationships with their foster families and other caregivers, but there were also reports of physical and sexual abuse, both in foster homes and in group living situations like hostels and camps that were used in some of the evacuations. So we're only going to be making note of those sorts of issues when there's something unique with them in a particular evacuation. Otherwise, it was just an element in all of them. First up, we're going to talk about kinder transport. And this is a name that was coined later in the 20th century to describe a collection of programs to evacuate children from Germany and German-occupied territory and to take them to the United Kingdom. These evacuations took place between 1938 and 1940, with most of them happening before the start of World War II in Europe in 1939. This all started after Kristallnacht, or the Night of the Breaking Glass. This was a pogrom that took place on November 9th and 10th, 1938. When this happened, Nazi forces arrested nearly 30,000 Jewish men and sent them to concentration camps. Nazis also murdered at least 100 Jews and destroyed hundreds of synagogues and community buildings. Thousands of homes and shops were also destroyed. 
world leaders had been discussing the, quote, refugee problem in Germany and German-occupied territory for months at this point. The problem was that aid organizations had thousands of applications from people seeking refugee status, but most nations were reluctant to let them in. The horrors of Kristallnacht made the situation worse, but it didn't really change the other nations' minds. This was also true in the UK, where Jewish and human rights organizations had been lobbying extensively for more German Jews to be given refugee status. It was really only through this continual advocacy that the British government finally changed its mind. Ultimately, the British government announced that it would allow children under the age of 17 to enter the country and stay under a temporary visa. But the government also stressed that idea of temporary. The children were intended to be reunited with their families after the crisis had passed. Relief organizations had to guarantee that until that happened, the children wouldn't be a burden on state finances or threaten the British job market. The children's parents also were not part of the program. The kinder transport only evacuated children. To try to ensure that these children's stay was temporary, a bond of 50 pounds had to be posted for each of them. And then a wide range of religious and secular groups all became part of the effort to raise funds and find temporary homes and arrange other care. These included the Jewish service organization B'nai B'rith, as well as the Society of Friends and the YMCA. Private citizens played a big part, too, by donating funds and clothing and offering their own homes as shelter. After a radio appeal on November 25th of 1938, more than 500 private citizens offered to act as foster parents. Multiple organizations on both ends of the journey identified the children who needed to be evacuated and then made arrangements to do so. In Britain, there were the British Committee for the Jews of Germany and the Movement for the Care of Children from Germany, which was later known as the Refugee Children's Movement. On the continent, there were the Reich representation of Jews in Germany in Berlin and the Jewish Community Organization in Vienna. The Reich Association of Jews in Germany succeeded the Reich representation of Jews in Germany in late 1939. The first children to be evacuated were the ones who were in the greatest danger. So orphans whose orphanages had been destroyed, children whose parents had been deported, murdered, or sent to concentration camps, children whose homes had been destroyed in the pogroms. The first arrivals were nearly 200 children from an orphanage in Berlin that had been destroyed during Kristallnacht. They arrived on December 2nd, 1938. As the evacuation went on and a lot of the most urgent cases were handled, relief organizations started to focus on the children that seemed like they'd be able to assimilate well. There was an ongoing fear that this influx of child refugees was going to lead to an increase in anti-Semitism and anti-refugee sentiment. So as time went on, the focus turned to children who seemed bright, tidy, and well-behaved, and teenagers who had some kind of job or domestic skills that would be useful but not overwhelm the job market. Throughout this evacuation, children traveled by train to ports in Belgium and the Netherlands where they would cross the English Channel by boat. They left from major cities like Berlin, Vienna, and Prague. Children who lived outside of the cities traveled to gathering points to get onto the trains. A very few children were flown directly from Czechoslovakia, and in the very earliest days of the evacuation, a few transport left directly from Germany itself. 
1940, the kinder transport had evacuated between 9,000 and 10,000 children from Germany and German-annexed territory. About half of these children stayed with sponsors and foster families. Those who didn't initially have sponsors or foster families temporarily stayed at facilities like summer camps. In some cases, larger groups of children lived together in hostels. Those who were over the age of 14 often got some sort of job training and then went on to do domestic or agricultural work. Apart from the reports of abuse that we mentioned at the top of the episode, the conditions that these children faced in Britain really varied. Even when it came to children who were generally treated with compassion and kindness, a lot of the host families just didn't have a lot of cultural competence about the religious or social needs of Jewish children. Some of the host families also volunteered basically so they could get an older child to work as a household servant. In 1940, a public panic erupted over the idea that a so-called fifth column of Nazi sympathizers was at work in the UK. In the wake of this panic, more than 1,000 child refugees over the age of 16 were placed in internment camps as enemy aliens. Some of these children were deported from Britain and placed in camps in Australia and Canada. Often, their conditions at the camps and in transit were appalling. Even so, a number of kinder transportees, also known as kinder, joined the British Armed Forces after turning 18. Although this whole program had started with the idea that the children would return to their families after the crisis was over, obviously, most of the children couldn't. Many of their parents were murdered during the Holocaust, and few of the kinder ever saw their families again. After the war was over, many eventually became citizens of the United Kingdom or immigrated to other countries, including Israel after it was founded in 1948. In 1989, the first Kinder Transport reunion was held in London, with Kinder from all over the United Kingdom, Israel, Australia, and other countries reconnecting with each other. The Kinder Transport Association formed after this reunion, and it has continued to work to reunite Kinder with their host families and each other. Today, December 2nd, is recognized as World Kinder Transport Day. Although the kinder transport is generally celebrated as a humanitarian effort to protect children, it really should be noted that most children weren't protected. So the kinder transport rescued between 9,000 and 10,000 Jewish children, but nearly 2 million Jewish children died during the Holocaust. Uh, We are going to take a quick sponsor break, and then after that, we will talk about some other evacuation efforts in the 1930s and 1940s. Turn to World War II for a moment with what might be the most well-known mass evacuation of children. It's Operation Pied Piper. This was the evacuation of children out of British cities and into the countryside during World War II due to the fear of German airstrikes. Some of the children also went to Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. And smaller evacuations after the first big one continued until 1944. This evacuation is really just part of the public memory in the United Kingdom. It is depicted in a lot of literature. It's why the children are in that country house with the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Operation Pied Piper began on September 1st, 1939. That's the day that Germany invaded Poland, but the order to, quote, evacuate forthwith actually came from the Ministry of Health at about 11 a.m. the day before. 
Following this order, over the first four days of September, more than a million people were evacuated from Britain's urban areas. The vast majority were children. These children traveled by bus and train, and they all had tags bearing their names and addresses pinned to their clothing. About 100,000 teachers also worked as guardians during transit in this first big wave of evacuations. By the end of the war, more than 3 million people had been evacuated from areas that were considered to be in danger. This was a colossal movement of people, and particularly at the destinations, the scene was often chaotic. Although the government had ordered the evacuation, local municipalities often didn't get much direction beyond handle it as best you can. Sometimes children arrived at the wrong destination, and local authorities didn't have rations or housing ready. Or sometimes a town was expecting hundreds of children, but received thousands instead. But of today's six evacuations, Operation Pied Piper is the one in which some of the evacuees described the whole thing as feeling like an adventure, at least at the beginning. A lot of the children had never left their own neighborhoods before, and they looked forward to seeing another place. As they were evacuated, a lot of them didn't have a clear idea of what was really going on or what had motivated their journey. They thought they were going on some kind of field trip. As adults, many of the evacuees talked about not understanding at first why their parents and the other grown-ups around them were crying. And, of course, a lot of that initial optimism and excitement faded due to homesickness and separation from their parents and siblings. Some of the children who were evacuated in September of 1939 returned home again during the Phony War, also known as the Sitzkrieg, which lasted from September 1939 until May of 1940. In most cases, the children who returned home during these eight months were evacuated again after Germany invaded France and the Low Countries. In addition to the children who were evacuated out of urban areas in Great Britain, which is the more well-known story, there was also a mass evacuation from Guernsey and the Channel Islands. About 5,000 children were evacuated with their schools in June of 1940, and this was the start of a major evacuation of everyone on the island. Although by the time Germany occupied Guernsey at the end of June, only half of its population, or about 17,000 people, had been evacuated. Our next evacuation was also during the World War II years, and it was connected to the Winter War between the Soviet Union and Finland. Sometimes you'll see the Winter War folded into the larger arc of World War II. And it started when Soviet leader Joseph Stalin demanded that Finland surrender some of its territory to create a buffer around Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Finland refused, and after a series of failed negotiations, the Red Army invaded on November 30th, 1939. Almost immediately, people started talking about evacuating Finland's children to Sweden to try to keep them safe. There were a number of women's organizations and other non-governmental organizations all working toward that same end. On December 30th of 1939, they formed the Center for Assistance to Finland to coordinate this whole effort. Finland's Ministry of the Interior spread the word that children and the mothers of young children could evacuate to Sweden. Of the six evacuations we're talking about today, this is the only one that included mothers in any kind of larger scale. And at first, there wasn't a lot of interest, but that changed as the war progressed and the situation became more threatening. In the end, 5,500 children and 1,100 adults were evacuated during the Winter War. They traveled out of Finland by train, plane, and ship. Most went to Sweden, although some went to Norway and Denmark. 
The children's parents were expected to contribute to their cost of transportation and care. On March 3rd, 1940, one of the trains that was being used for transport during this evacuation crashed. Three nurses, 15 children, and one pregnant woman died in the accident. About 20 people were also injured. The Winter War ended 10 days later, and the evacuees returned home, although not immediately. Many wanted to wait for the country to stabilize before returning. In June of 1940, about 800 evacuees had not come home again. 80 people who had evacuated were still out of the country by the end of 1940. War returned to Finland in 1941, when Finland and Nazi Germany fought the USSR during the Continuation War. And then Finland was at war with Germany from September 1944 to April 1945. In these later years, nearly 50,000 Finnish children between the ages of 1 and 10 were once again evacuated into Sweden. There have been several studies exploring the idea of whether all these children were really better off in their evacuation by looking at their health later in life. Based on increased incidence of conditions like heart disease and diabetes, researchers have concluded that the stress of the evacuation may not have outweighed being out of the war zone. Yeah, of all of these evacuations, like I found a lot of papers that included oral histories and kind of sociological studies of what the evacuation was like. And this is the only one that I found a big focus on health outcomes later in life and what that might say about the stress of the evacuation and whether it was ultimately worth it. Yeah, there's not a lot of focus on long-term health in general, I would say, but specifically not uh, from something that happened to a group of people when they were very young and then tracking them into their adulthood is very rare. Yeah. So our last evacuation that took place during the years surrounding World War II actually connects to the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War started in 1936, and it followed a failed military coup. On one side was the Spanish Republican government, and on the other side were the nationalists who had orchestrated the coup. The nationalists were led by General Francisco Franco, and they had the support of fascist Italy and Germany. On April 27, 1937, German and Italian forces, acting at the behest of General Franco, bombed the Basque city of Guernica. Guernica was of no strategic importance in the war, so most other nations regarded this bombing as completely senseless. It also inspired Pablo Picasso's painting, Guernica, which you'll also often hear pronounced Guernica, which is how I learned it from an art teacher. Uh, but that is one of his most famous works and is described as one of the world's most famous anti-war paintings. Yeah, it's the one that has, like, the the strange cows and the woman holding the, the child, and it's like a mural-sized painting. I don't, I haven't done a very good job of describing it, but... <laughs> Um, if you think of of uh, if you think of Picasso, that may be the the image that immediately leaps into your mind. So there was an immediate call for nations to accept refugees from Guernica, and at first, the British government, as had happened in the Kinder Transport, or as would happen in the Kinder Transport, refused. But in the face of huge public pressure, the government reluctantly agreed. But as would be the case with the Kinder Transport, they set very clear expectations for this program. Relief organizations that were making all these arrangements had to guarantee that they would be solely responsible for these children and all costs associated with them for the entire length of their stay in the UK. 
One of the big proponents of this plan and allowing these refugees into the UK was Eleanor Rathbone, who was the independent MP for the Combined Universities, who would also go on to be a big advocate for the kinder transport. About 4,000 child refugees arrived in the United Kingdom on May 23, 1937. They mostly stayed at camps near the town of Eastleigh in Hampshire, and some stayed in foster homes. After the Nationalist side won the Spanish Civil War in 1939 and Franco became its head of state, he demanded that the children be repatriated to Spain. And although most of these evacuees were returned to Spain, between 250 and 400 of them were still in the UK when World War II actually started. A few of them never returned home. We have two more evacuations that we're going to talk about after we have another sponsor break. Both of those were connected to the Cold War and particularly how the United States responded to communism during the Cold War. Our next evacuation is Operation Babylift, which was carried out by the United States at the end of the Vietnam War. So the history of the United States' involvement in Vietnam is long and complicated. I initially tried to explain it, and it was taking the length of an entire podcast. So to be extremely brief, the United States supported the Republic of Vietnam, also known as South Vietnam, against the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, or North Vietnam, which was communist. It's obviously a more gigantic story than that, but that's the basic. For the purposes of setting this up, Those are the broad strokes. Uh, The United States' direct military involvement in this war started in 1965 under the administration of Lyndon Johnson. And this involvement was incredibly controversial and divisive. By 1969, the Nixon administration had implemented a policy known as Vietnamization to try to end American involvement in the war. In theory, this policy transferred military responsibility from the U.S. to South Vietnam. While this did lead to the U.S. pulling the last troops out of Vietnam in 1973, it did not allow South Vietnam to successfully defend itself. By the spring of 1975, North Vietnam was headed toward victory, with the city of Saigon about to fall. By this point, the United States had been evacuating United States citizens and non-essential personnel from more remote areas to the relative safety of Saigon for months. Aircraft from World Airways were being used for this purpose, and World Airways President Ed Daly also had a daughter, Charlotte, who was working with charities in the United States to try to find adoptive homes for Vietnamese children. She asked her father to try to help find a way to get these children to the United States. Daly used his connections with the government to try to get authorization to do so, but things were not happening quickly enough for his satisfaction. So on April 2nd, 1975, a World Airways DC-8 cargo plane took off from Saigon. On board were 53 Vietnamese children and 22 adult attendants. The flight had no passenger seats, no flight plan, no formal clearance, and no sanction by the U.S. government or by the government of South Vietnam. Airfield staff cut the runway lights and unsuccessfully ordered the plane to stop its takeoff, but it ultimately made it to its final destination of Oakland International Airport. The next day, as word of all of this spread, President Gerald Ford authorized and announced Operation Babylift, 
This would be a mass effort to rescue as many South Vietnamese orphans as possible and bring them to the United States where they would be placed with adoptive families. This also became part of a larger effort to transport South Vietnamese refugees out of the country, and that greater effort would start on April 17th of 1975. In the words of Henry Kissinger, quote, 20 years of hope, frustration, and discord over Vietnam had now been reduced to a single objective, to save a maximum number of potential Vietnamese victims from the consequences of America's abandonment. The first official flight in Operation Babylift took off on April 4th, 1975, and it ended in tragedy. The plane was immensely crowded, with children in both the passenger and cargo areas of the plane. In the passenger area, toddlers and young children were strapped in two to a seat. And in the cargo area, babies were on blankets and secured to the floor in groups. A crew of nurses and volunteers were on board to look after them in flight. But shortly after takeoff from Tan Sunyut Air Base, the rear cargo doors blew out because of a maintenance problem. This destroyed the rear of the aircraft and it caused a rapid loss of pressure inside of the aircraft. The pilot, who was Captain Dennis Trainer, known as Bud, turned around to try to make an emergency landing back at the airbase, but the plane crashed a couple of miles short of the runway. 78 children and about 50 adults died in this crash. Most of the more than 170 survivors had been in the passenger compartment, while many in the cargo area were killed. The program continued after the crash of that first flight, though, and in the end, more than 2,000 children were evacuated from South Vietnam to the United States and a few other countries around the end of the war. A lot of mainstream coverage of Operation Babylift in the United States has framed it in a positive, humanitarian way. But it continues to be surrounded by controversy. There's some debate about how many of these children were really orphans. It's certain that some of them had living parents who either didn't have the means to take care of them because of the war or who thought they would be better off outside of Vietnam. There have also been allegations that American personnel took some children off the streets of Saigon without really knowing what their family situation was. And some of the children had been fathered by American military personnel who were stationed in Vietnam. Outside of the context of this evacuation... Transracial adoption has its own controversies and its own complexities, some of which, frankly, are way outside of our lane. Some Vietnamese children were adopted into white families who didn't necessarily know any other Vietnamese people or know anything about Vietnamese culture. Sometimes the adoptive families seemed motivated by a desire to sort of demonstrate how generous and patriotic they were by adopting one of these Vietnamese children. And as the children of Operation Baby Lift have grown into adulthood, a lot of them have tried to figure out who their families were in Vietnam and tried to reconnect with their Vietnamese heritage. On top of all of this, Operation Baby Lift was very political. The United States' involvement in the Vietnam War was incredibly contentious and, as we said, divisive. And U.S. actions during the war had directly contributed to what was happening in South Vietnam at the end of the war. So Operation Babylift was simultaneously a genuinely humanitarian effort, a paternalistic attempt to save South Vietnam, and an attempt to restore some goodwill and create good PR for the United States. The president himself even greeted a plane full of orphans in San Francisco on April 5th, where his picture was taken holding babies from the plane. Yeah, there was just a lot of 
very positive uh, attempts to spin this as, look at how we are rescuing our allies in South Vietnam, just sort of leaving off the part of having largely made the problem in the first place. Also, this controversy is not new. This is not something people have just started talking about in the last five years. A number of lawsuits were filed in the wake of Operation Babylift soon after it happened. These included a class action lawsuit contending that it was unconstitutional and in violation of international treaties. There were also lawsuits against Lockheed Martin that stemmed from the crash of that first Babylift flight. By the end of April 1975, 40,000 people had been evacuated from Saigon, including about 3,000 babies and young children in Operation Babylift. And about 2,000 of these children were adopted in the United States. About 1,000 were adopted in Canada, Australia, and in the U.S. allies in Europe. And as was the case with kinder transport, I mean, people talk about how many people were evacuated, but many, many more people were left behind at the end of the war. Our last mass evacuation in today's episode is Operation Pedro Pan, sometimes called Operation Peter Pan. And this was a mass evacuation of unaccompanied minors from Cuba after Fidel Castro came to power following the Cuban Revolution in 1959, making Cuba the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere. At first, Operation Pedro Pan was a program to allow and even encourage people who were fighting against the Castro regime to send their children to the United States. And the idea was that they'd be able to focus on the resistance without having to care for their children or to worry about their children's safety. The children came into the United States on student visas, which were issued from the U.S. Embassy in Havana. But the United States cut diplomatic ties with Cuba and closed the embassy in Havana on January 3rd, 1961. And at this point, Operation Pedro Pan began to broaden to include anyone who wanted to send their children out of Cuba. People did this for a lot of different reasons. Some people really were counter-revolutionaries who were fighting against the Castro regime and were worried that their own activities could endanger their children. Catholic families were also becoming concerned for their religious freedoms as Castro began nationalizing Catholic schools and expelling Catholic clergy from Cuba. Some parents worried that the Castro regime was going to end parents' legal authority over their children or that their children were going to be indoctrinated. The United States, especially when it came to these last two, definitely helped spread these fears through media and propaganda. After closing the embassy in Havana, the United States State Department worked with the Catholic Welfare Bureau to continue these evacuations. The State Department gave Monsignor Brian Walsh the authority to sign visa waivers for Cuban children under the age of 16. This visa waiver would allow them to fly from Havana to Miami. Pan Am flew two direct flights a day, and these planes became increasingly filled with unaccompanied minors. Between 1960 and 1962, 14,000 unaccompanied minors flew from Cuba to Miami. About half of them were met at the airport by friends or relatives. Maybe not close relatives, but someone they at least were related to. The rest of them were placed with foster families or were housed in hostels or other group living situations. Most of these children were from the Cuban middle and lower class because wealthy Cubans who had wanted to leave the country had already done so before this program really started. This whole situation was supposed to be temporary. 
The idea was that the U.S. and counter-revolutionaries in Cuba would overthrow Fidel Castro, and then the children would return home to their families. But that is not what happened. Not only did Castro stay in power, but children were only reunited with their families if their families left Cuba as well. The United States also stopped all commercial flights between the United States and Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. That ban on flights stayed in place for three years. And during that time, the only way for these children to be reunited with their parents was if their parents made the dangerous crossing from Cuba to Florida by boat. After commercial flights resumed in 1965, freedom flights began taking off from Havana to carry refugees to the United States. The first of these left Havana on December 1st, 1965. And this is really when the evacuated children, known as Pedro Panes, resumed being reunited with their families. But this had its own level of difficulty. Some of the Pedro Panes who did not already have friends or family in the U.S. had been sent to foster homes far away from Miami. And that's where their parents had to go, sometimes moving to a place where there were few, if any, other Cubans because that's where their children had been placed. Yeah, when we say far away from Miami, we don't mean like Orlando. Hialeah. (laughs) Yeah, we we mean like Minnesota. Yeah. Like really, and and in in some cases, uh, there was just no Cuban community there, not really a lot of resources. As it was going on, Operation Pedro Pan was not really publicized. The State Department and the Catholic Welfare Bureau really tried to keep it out of the press as much as possible. But at the same time, once it did make the news, it was, as with the case of Operation Babylift, very politicized. For example, the Miami Herald ran a headline, quote, 8,000 Cuban children saved from communist brainwashing. Today, this is regarded very differently in Cuba versus in the United States. In Cuba, especially while Fidel Castro was still in power, it was viewed as a nefarious and coordinated CIA effort to destroy Cuban families. Stories of Pedro Panes' experiences with racism, abuse, and homesickness became part of anti-American propaganda. But in Cuban-American cultural memory, it has more often been seen as a necessary flight from the Castro regime that came with some hardships, but still allowed children and their families to escape. Yeah, some of that perception has become a little more nuanced, similarly with Operation Babylift, where as the children who had been evacuated grew up, they started telling their own stories more, and, and some of that has happened with Operation Pedro Pan as well. And we said earlier that this operation was meant to be temporary. And for most of the Pedro Panes, the separation from their families was ter- temporary. Most of them were reunited with at least some family members, although in a lot of cases it took years for that reunion to happen. But overwhelmingly, their stay in the United States was not temporary. Most Pedro Panes have never returned to Cuba, and at various points it's been illegal for them to do so. On November 2nd, 1966, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Cuban Adjustment Act, which set up a process for these and other Cuban refugees to become permanent residents of the United States. Operation Pedro Pan made news again in 1999 in both Cuba and the United States during the Elian Gonzalez controversy. Gonzalez's mother had fled Cuba with him and she had died in a shipwreck. 
and this led to an enormous international custody dispute, with images of Operation Pedro Pan, again heavily politicized, being used by both sides. Federal agents took Elian Gonzalez at gunpoint on April 22, 2000, and returned him to Cuba, something that was seen as an outrage among most Cuban Americans and a victory among most Cubans in Cuba. Uh, I was, of all of these evacuations, I was astounded to learn about 14,000 unaccompanied minors. I will tell you a funny thing, which is that when you first just kind of said that number to me, that phrase with no context, in my head, I envisioned 14,000 children flying a plane by themselves. <laughs> like, I completely, like, made a, a really completely inappropriate cartoon version. Um And then I was like, oh, no, they were on regular transport. They were just, they didn't have any adults with them. I see, I see, I see. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, those are are six evacuations of children, all of them having some elements in common, but especially those last two having sort of a dramatically different political uh, use almost in terms of propaganda and PR. I also have some listener mail. That sounds grand. This is from Lauren. Lauren says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I work at the Minnesota Historical Society, which manages historic Fort Snelling. And I was so excited when I listened to your episode on the Nisei in World War II and heard you talking about the Military Intelligence Service Language School in Minnesota. This is a piece of Minnesota history I didn't know about until I started working at MNHS. Here are a few more details about the... MISLS's time in Minnesota that I find super fascinating. One, when the school had to leave California after Executive Order 9066, the Army tried to find somewhere to move, but several states completely refused to accept the school in their borders. So Minnesota was unique for saying yes and being fairly welcoming to these students. Two, the school's time in Minnesota actually significantly changed the population demographics of our state. In the 1940 census, only about 50 people of Japanese descent lived in the state, and by 1950, over 1,000 people lived here. After their deployments, many of the former MISLS students remembered their experiences training in Minnesota and decided it would be a great place to live. And today at MNHS, we do a lot of work with the Twin Cities Japanese American Citizen League, mostly with descendants, but there are a few MISLS-trained World War II vets who are still alive to make sure this history keeps being told. We're also always working to better document this history in our collection because it's not as robust as we'd like. And then she uh, talks about working with this and, and finding some new photos of students. And she sent a link to a press release that had some stories about these students and how they wound up training in Minnesota. And she says to please let her know if we ever need any Minnesota history ideas. Thank you so much, Lauren, for sending that. Um, One of the articles um, that I found as I was doing the research on this was really all about how the the military intelligence service had been... uh, viewed in Minnesota and how it like how that had worked within the community and it just was not one of the things that we had time to deeply get into in the episode so thank you so much for sharing that if you would like to write to us we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com and then we're also all over social media at mistinhistory.com and that is our Facebook and our Twitter and our Instagram and our Pinterest you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on. That includes links to all the sources that we used. 
Uh, There's also a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 